Intersection is brought to you by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Learn more at touchpoint.health. I didn't know at the time what we were dealing with, and he certainly didn't either. So the guilt of realizing that I missed it, uh, or missed an opportunity to maybe help him differently, is something that's I've had to just let go of. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. Always just love kids, love being around them, even as a child. Loved younger children, loved going hanging out in the church nursery, loved every family reunion, gathered as many kids around me as I could, organized games, worked at camps all through high school and college. And when I take time off of work, I miss being around children. It's, I mean, when I've been on vacation, I look forward to getting back and being around kids. I just love them. Her name is Bri, and she's an amazing pediatrician in a small town in South Carolina. This mother of three faced one of the toughest challenges as a mother, finding out her son has a mental health issue and feeling completely helpless in a system that has no easy answers. The next two episodes explores her journey in becoming a pediatrician and a mom and how all those relatable conventions were tested beyond measure when she finally started seeking help for her son. This story is one being faced every day by parents, the rise of mental health issues found in their children with no easy answers and little access to quality care. Her journey took her out of state to an emergency room just to have her son examined. Here is part one of her story. Despite loving children and being around children and even having a particular interest in special needs children um, and young adults, I did not intend to go to medical school. I wasn't sure until even halfway through college that I was looking at medical school. I thought something health related, mostly because I watched my brother and sister be born. I was 12 when my sister came along and almost... Well, I was 16 when my brother came along. So I was very involved in their childhoods. And I think by the time my brother came, I felt like I want to do something in healthcare, and <clears throat> thought maybe physical therapy or something like that. And then halfway through college, uh, really was doing well and in classes with pre-med people and the idea just came, why haven't I actually thought about medical school um, since I had such a broad interest in lots of medical areas. And then I intentionally went through medical school trying not to decide on pediatrics, kind of fighting against it so that I would be open to whatever possibilities in third year when you do your rotations, um, what other possibilities might come along. And so after going through all those third year rotations, it was inevitable I was going to do pediatrics, but I enjoyed them all and just felt like I could definitely combine that passion for children and love of healthcare. And the idea of preventative medicine was huge. The idea of um, kind of doing general care was really fascinating because you would see the whole range of development and special areas of medical and development and 
um, families. You're kind of dealing with the whole family. You got to just see a huge spectrum of illness and wellness and be involved. So, uh, You talk about something that I think is fascinating is, and I haven't thought about it with our own pediatrician, with mm-hmm. uh, Henry George Rose, <laughs> is that they are very much in tune with preventative measures as a pediatrician. They're thinking ahead versus reacting to what's just happened. Right. Part of the joy of pediatrics is you're generally, you're dealing with a well population. You know, you're, you're even the kids that come in sick, the expectation with a child is they will be well. That's part of the love of pediatrics. You're not dealing with a population that's getting sicker they're getting better and better and better as a whole and they're um, rarely thankfully critically ill I mean that's an uncommon thing in pediatrics so you get to see them well try to teach them well habits we spend a lot of time on anticipatory guidance a lot of time teaching kids how to take ownership of their health and well-being because that's you know you're preparing them for healthy full productive lives or that's the goal so what's it like being a pediatrician and then having your own children is uh, that's got to be an interesting way you know we talk about work work life balance and balancing all the pieces of our daily routine what was it like having kids but at the same time having children as a pediatrician well um Thankfully, I love my job, so I never felt like being at work and dealing with children all day and then coming home and dealing with children didn't seem like a negative. It actually seemed like a positive because, or seems like a positive, because I felt like being at work was almost energizing to a degree in terms of seeing things and and doing what I love and learning from parents. I learned so much from the families that I take care of, watching them go through their trials and and, um, successes with parenting and as a family. And so I felt like it would feed me to then go home and be energized or have learned something new. Um, And so I I multiple times have said, I feel like being a mom helps me be a better pediatrician and being a pediatrician hopefully helps me be a better mom that I felt like those were connected. And it was fascinating to see the things you learn about evolve in your own children and um, in a very new way. You know, it's different seeing a kid roll over for the first time when it's yours, when you know they're supposed to roll over between four and six months. And then when yours does it, it's like, all new it's just incredible my mom being a nurse practitioner you know kind of shares that similar pathway where there are days as my mom she's my mom and there's days that she's my medical provider Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. many days the medical provider in her makes her even more of a, I wouldn't say paranoid, but hypervigilant mom. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, oh, yes. What, talk yes. about the balances there of how do you step back sometimes and let your children be children when you mm. know mm. as a pediatrician, where do you play that game? What's that That's game hard. like? That's hard. Um, 
Yes, because in fact, my kids figured out pretty early on, I'd come home and I'd say, okay, listen, if you're ever in this situation, and I would name some, you know, you're with your friends and they're doing so-and-so and you know you really shouldn't and you're not sure what to do. You call me, yeah, I gave them kind of, I'd give them a script. This is what you say, this is what you do. And they'd say, oh, you had a patient that that happened to. You know, they figured out really quickly that I was kind of carrying over situations and trying to prepare them for some, you know, social nightmare or whatever, or safety issue that, did you know you weren't supposed to eat the Tide Pods? <laughs> you know, just Do not eat the Tide Pods. Right, right. <laughs> but um, yeah, definitely. I think, especially now looking back, I can see where maybe put me on higher alert, maybe kept a tighter rein at times on them. Not that I regret that because I think <laughs> boys need a tight rein, but um, maybe a little, uh, maybe the expectations were a little heavier hmm. than they needed to be or maybe should have been. Um, kind of part of that anticipation is kind of not waiting on them to do something wrong, but anticipating the pitfalls or the dangers of each stage. And um, like I said, maybe being a vigilant to the point of, I wonder now, um, putting maybe some heavier weight on them with expectations than another mom might would have. I don't know. I don't know how to how to separate that part out of kind of feeling like I'm looking ahead and seeing what could be coming and, and kind of wanting to brace for it or brace them for it. Um, you know, I feel like they have, they also had the advantage of maybe um, trusting me a little differently, mm. you know, I, I would like to think um, they're very quick to come to me with questions and ask about things. And I felt like it was pretty open as far as um, them feeling like they could ask me for advice for most things up until point. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe out with their girlfriends or something. <laughs> so how did you deal with the moment you realized that your son was struggling with an issue? Well, um, to be clear, it part of the difficulty was there wasn't a moment. Hmm. It was very much um, an kind of unraveling, honestly. Um, I, my firstborn was of course perfect. Um, so were my second and third, by the way, but, uh, just n never saw anything that I would consider a problem. Just this brilliant kid from the time he could talk. I mean, just amazing the thoughts the words the questions he asked the insight the sensitivity i mean just everything you want your kid to be able to have in life as part of who they are was there joyful happy creative um you know the challenges as a parent were always with him growing up um how to how to parent a kid who seemed to not need a whole lot. 
other than an occasional stop sign. You can't jump off the roof of the playhouse, <laughs> maybe. But um, just and and very just a very happy thing to watch him and be engaged with him growing up. So when there started to be some difficulties, it, it was very unclear what was going on. It definitely did not occur to me that we were dealing with a serious mental illness. Even after a couple of years, it didn't occur to me that we were dealing with a serious mental illness because I felt like I was seeing this perfect kid with every quality to be well. And around 13, oh, well, we're in puberty. So some emotional um, ups and downs are normal. Feeling down, feeling unsure um, socially is normal. We're in middle school. This is um, kind of maybe a realm of uh, a spectrum of normal and he's just more sensitive he's very bright so it's, sometimes it's hard for him to maybe socially mix in certain situations because he thinks differently and outside the box you know so it was easy to kind of categorize issues that came up as being again a variation of the normal experience of a teenager and a middle schooler and um it, it became, over the next several years, um, gradually apparent that it wasn't just some depression. It wasn't just some anxiety. And in the midst of that, taking him to a counselor so he could talk about situations or things he was going through, we did all that. We took him to a psychiatrist even at one point because I knew I couldn't be his mental health person for those common middle school things, I thought. So we took him to a psychiatrist who did, who did adolescent care, and he said, yes, I think he's got some depression, and we'll put him on some antidepressants. And, oh, his attention is kind of it's pretty distracted, so we'll try some medicine for that. And, and I'm trusting the healthcare system to do what I've learned it can do and you have a problem and you kind of define it and then you have a solution and I felt like that's the path we were on and um, yet things were getting worse and worse and harder and harder for him and unfortunately now I know that the symptoms he was experiencing were so scary I think to him that he didn't want to necessarily reveal them. Mm. And in fact, after about a year or maybe even a year and a half, when he finally could say the words that sometimes I hear things, it was a fear of sharing that because either the voices told him not to tell or he knew that that would mean there was something really wrong. And he was smart enough to figure it out. I don't know that I really want to put that out there. Hmm. And at times he's even said that he didn't want to worry me. And when it got bad enough that he thought people were coming, 
after him when he could finally admit that he had experienced that, that he saw people coming after him as a young teenager. And I asked, why would, why didn't you tell me so I could help you differently? He said, because I thought they were coming for you too. Mm-hmm. And so hearing all that after probably over a year of him living through that, and not understanding why he wanted to be in his room all the time, why he didn't want to engage much, why he quit smiling. I didn't know at the time what we were dealing with, and he certainly didn't either. So the guilt of realizing that I missed it, uh, or missed an opportunity to maybe help him differently, is something that I've had to just let go of. You know, and I've had to ask him to let, to help me let go of that um, and to forgive me for not knowing. And, and I think in his mind, maybe thinking kind of I should have, he'll say, you, you couldn't have known, I didn't tell you, but yet your kid expects their parent to know and to, and to fix it, whether <laughs> they're completely transparent or not. Do you feel like you're looking through the lens at your child as a parent and describing this or as a physician that's a pediatrician? Totally as a parent. Totally as a parent. Um, I do, this is such a different realm than the pediatrics I was trained in. You know, we, we talk about kind of screening kids for depression or anxiety. We don't, we don't talk about, well, in my training, we didn't talk about screening children mm-hmm. for psychosis. Right. That's not, this isn't a normal thing. Now I'm discovering as I'm educating myself on it, that it's much more common, more commonly recognized than I would have ever thought or anticipated. And I can agree with that. Um, with Rose, you know, we've, you and I've had conversations about Rose and after the twins were born and we think she went through some PTSD and it, we talked to our pediatrician Mm -hmm. and he was immediately on board that we're starting to recognize this more and that it's good to go ahead and reach out to a psychiatrist and, Mm -hmm. and start building these coping mechanisms. And this is, I wouldn't say progressive, but it's a it's a new age. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as a as a pediatrician that was trained 16, 17, 20 years ago mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in medicine, right? Even and I would even say you're probably I would say your class was probably more male dominated, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, still. And now it's a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. How? How hard is that to know I wasn't even trained to think this way and it started to show itself and I wasn't even trained to even recognize this. Well, and yes, and I've had to, I think early on, even when my kids with pretty, what I'd say, common illnesses, I, for the most part, asked my partners to listen to their chest. I mean, I, I definitely would. Mm-hmm. check them at home sometimes but for the most part if they had a fever and a sore throat they came to the office and saw someone else mm. because I knew 
I mean, you learn that early on. You've got to maintain obje objectivity, particularly with your own children. Yep. And that's just almost impossible to do. And so I think that's a good thing and that's been helpful, particularly from a mental health aspect. Of course, I deal with mental health with patients all the time, but you can be more objective when it's not your kid. And when it is, the need to be objective, particularly with these issues, um, has been challenging, but yet there was a preparation for that. Right. That I had partners who took care of my children, did checkups for my children all through growing up. Um, yet, I also do know enough to have those fears of what certain diagnoses can mean, knowing where we are with development in these later teen years and early adult years and the process of identity development. And you've got a young man whose identity is now tied up in a mental health disorder and trying desperately for him to understand that's not who you are. It's part of who you are, but your identity is much greater. You're not broken. You know, we've had to treat him in a way and verbalize to him and show him over and over your identity is not broken you're not that's not your label but that's hard to not feel when your brain is not working right and your emotions are all over the place either alongside your brain not working right or your um, normal human emotion to my brain doesn't work right it it it's something that mom and I've had long discussions about, even as a child growing up. Um, you're trained in a chart. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. once you are in a chart, mm -hmm. this is your path. If you have asthma, we know what your path is. Mm -hmm. If you have diabetes, this is your path. Mm -hmm. If you have heart disease, this is your path. Mm -hmm. And it's insurance stuff because you don't want to get stigmatized into a pathway. Um, if you have high blood pressure, all those things, and then you throw mental health on that, mm -hmm. it's on the chart, and we don't want to talk about that because there's a perception and stigmatization to it. Oh, my, yeah. Did, yeah. And I don't mean to try to speak for you, but yeah. it's almost the thoughts that I had from hearing my mom talk about raising me as a mental health, I mean, a, a medical professional and a mom. Mm-hmm is that she wanted to give me the best care, but she was protecting me in many situations from being stigmatized. Right. How the heck did you deal with that? I mean, that's because admitting that you've got to take your son to get treatment mm -hmm. is admitting a pathway and a stigmatization. Right. Would you agree or disagree or, or do you think about it differently? I think before we got to the point of understanding that he was dealing with a thought disorder and that thought disorder can encompass anything from um, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, um, what maybe even some people would previously have called bipolar disorder, though I think that's different in my mind. All of those areas, um, I forgot what I was, where I was going with that. Before we understood we were in that realm, 
and we were just dealing with symptoms and he was gradually unfolding what he was comfortable unfolding and getting him to people he trusted to tell those things to because we went through several doctors before he trusted them enough to really put it all out there. Um, before we knew or had some kind of definition of the dis the realm that we were dealing with, it was much harder because all we knew were these erratic behaviors or these erratic decisions. And that to me felt very damning as a pediatrician because I was supposed to know what to do with behaviors and poor decisions that I was supposed to be able to deal with. If your kid doesn't tell you the truth, if your kid um, sneaks and uh, you know is on their computer all night, you're, you, you deal with that. You, you put in preventive measures and you, what I didn't know is my son was being, was basically manic at the time. And it was almost compulsive for him to be up all night. I couldn't just take away the electronics and give him a melatonin and say, go to bed. Chemically, that wasn't going to happen for him. I didn't know that. So the damning time and the part for me that was difficult as a doctor and mom was, we're supposed to fix this and kind of trying to fix a behavior without understanding where it was coming from with the understanding over time and experts and getting a handle on the realm we are actually in, which is a much more serious mental health realm. That I, that's handing that role over to someone to help me sort through professionally that took a huge weight actually off of me. That, that label or, or diagnosis set said, okay, this, I I can accept help with. I can not be expected to know how I'm supposed to treat or manage professionally. I have no idea. I need help. It was kind of leading up to that, that it was the most difficult because it wasn't clear. It was confusing um, for him, for us. And um, those, I mean, I don't know, I can't say going forward, but so far those were the most difficult times, the um, kind of pre-diagnostic years. Absolutely. And I, and I think about the last time we spoke uh, with the group of friends together, mm -hmm. you shared about the time that you had to take him to an inpatient facility. Mm -hmm. And that was very tough. What What was that like? Well, I'll say, first of all, that as we started to get all the right people in place to take care of him, and when I say the right people, getting to a doctor who seemed to understand really the seriousness of what we were dealing with and the urgency of getting the right medical regimen together and taking the time to listen and do that was a years long process. So we finally got that less than a year ago. 
And he was very quick to say, we need to get some formal testing done. We need a different person to do that. We need to um, get him in front of some different therapists. Um, and so once those pieces started coming together and my son, I think, finally felt like he could release some of this he was still trying to control what was happening to him and hold all the cards. And I think when he had people around him, a team that he could trust that they knew what they were doing, he kind of let go. And that was a very scary time and a very vulnerable place for him. Thanks for listening. I hope you found Bry's story compelling as the national and statewide discussions surrounding mental health continue. Please listen to part two of her story as she shares extraordinary details of their first night in an out-of-state emergency department. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.